You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. This is a new podcast combining discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to another episode of Distilling Theology. Blake, what are we drinking today? So today we are trying a Kentucky bourbon. This is a classic called Woodford Reserve. It's the distiller's select, which... It's kind of a funny title, I think, because typically if you're having like a distiller's edition, it's a limited release, but distiller's select is the main release of Woodford Reserve. It actually threw me off one time because I had one of the bottles and I was like, oh, this is a special whiskey, but it's actually just the normal Woodford Reserve. Um, And and it (laughs) markets itself as a premium bourbon. I tend to find it, there's other stuff that I enjoy a little more for the price point. I think Woodford, if it was like five or $10 cheaper, would be more apropos to what it actually offers. Sure. But that's neither here nor there. It is um, bottled at 45.2% alcohol by volume and selected by Master Distiller, by the Master Distiller. Uh, on the back of my little tiny sample bottle, it says, <laughs> The art of making fine bourbon first took place on the site of the Woodford Reserve Distillery, a national historic landmark, in 1812. You have the like a more full-size bottle, so what does your bottle say? I do. I have the um, kind of the half-size bottle. And quite literally on it, there is nothing. Just on the back, it just has the government warning. And that's it. They didn't put anything on this thing. Well, already then. We're going in blind. <laughs> get to the chopper. I guess we should uh, get some aromatic notes here first. Let's see what we smell. Yeah, so I'm getting like dried fruit, maybe some orange. It's almost minty. Yeah, I see that. I'm getting like not as much apple as I thought I was going to get from a Kentucky bourbon because I typically get a lot of apple note. Sure. There's almost like a candied smell. Do you get that? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And then almost like vanilla, Mm -hmm. a little bit spicy, but not like a pepper, more like a kind of like a tobacco. Yeah. The more I smell it, I'm almost getting like a chocolatey, like a cocoa Mm -hmm. taste in my mouth as well. Yeah, there's actually quite a bit going on, which so maybe I sold it short. Maybe my presuppositions <laughs> got in the way of the truth. Oh, that precept though. I have Van Til's apologetics staring at me on my shelf here, so. Well, then you can't help it. That's right. Shall we uh <laughs> shall we take the first sip? We shall. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, it's very rich. Citrus. Cinnamon for sure. Mhm. Mm. Pretty re- it's pretty well-rounded little bourbon, I think. That's actually... Okay, so I definitely have not given it a fair shake. And I must apologize to the distillers at Woodford Reserve because I sold you short and I feel terrible. <laughs> you know what I realized, though, is I never let it sit in a glass. I always pour it and sip it because it's not a like sure. extra mature spirit. Yeah, my, mine's been sitting in the glass for about 15 minutes here. Yeah, mine's been at least a good five or ten. So maybe that's the trick. Maybe Woodford just needs a little bit of time to breathe. Sure. Because this is actually pretty interesting. It's definitely got a warm finish, real smooth. Yeah. It's fairly light bodied, which is not always my favorite thing in a bourbon. Sure. But I'm not complaining. There's also a, a mellow, like LaCroix level flavor of, of oak. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. You're right. It's like the water maybe passed over the oak for five seconds and you're like, oh yeah, I kind of have the faintest whiff of like somebody had some oak down the street and the wind blew. <laughs> 
<laughs> We're calling yep. you out, LaCroix fans. It's true, because it just it just kind of splashes you with the oaky. It's just bloop, real quick. No, that's good. It's definitely got like this interesting blend of citrus notes and just kind of some more cinnamony type, cocoa type flavors. It's pretty complex. It's pretty good. Yeah, I'm getting more apple in the palate mm-hmm. than I was on the nose. Mm-hmm. But like a little bit of, you know what it is? Okay, so it's like apple, vanilla, and cinnamon kind of as one note that's happening yeah and then there's just in the back of the mouth there's like this little tinge of almost like dark chocolate orange peel yeah yep i get you like it's like those two things i think that's probably like the cocoa mixing with the apple giving you kind of a dark yeah that's cool which is super weird to me because (laughs) normally you don't have those two things going on together like it's not unpleasant it's just kind of surprising yeah well it's been a while since you've had woodford and it's probably your palate's developed since I also definitely was quick to judge, so (laughs) I feel badly about that. So, Justin, what are you reading these days? Really? Right now, I'm still working through that epistle of Galatians commentary by Luther. I have recently started a book called Finding Your Way Through Loneliness Hmm. uh, by someone named Elizabeth Elliot, which is... I'm only a couple of chapters in, but it's it's got me pretty interested. It was gifted to me by a friend. And then also I mentioned in our Facebook Live that we just recently did. I just started reading through Hebrews as well, learning about the greater than, which I love. Oh, yeah. How about you? So I am still revisiting Hebrews because it's just blowing my mind left and right. It is. Yeah. And I'm also working my way through John Calvin's Truth for All Time, which I'm not enjoying quite as much as the pastoral writing in a little book on the Christian life. However, sure, I'm still finding it really engaging and intriguing because it's kind of like laid out like a catechism. So I'm enjoying yeah. that. I'm working my way through a couple of the things. I, I used to try and read one book at a time and it would take me forever. So I'm like, well, if it's going to take me a while, I may as well read like a couple books at a time. Sure. However, I've <laughs> returned to my addiction to audiobooks because I had a couple of long trips over the last three weeks. Mm-hmm. I went to New Jersey, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I went uh, up to Lake George for all the, for different types of jobs and travel. So, Lake George is in the Adirondacks, people, just in case you were curious. It is, and it is lovely. <laughs> but as a result of that, I started listening. This is super nerdy, but I don't care. This is distilling <laughs> theology. We're already, we're already nerds, so, you know. Amen. I started listening to Timothy Zahn's new Thrawn trilogy, which is set within the Star Wars universe. Mm. I don't know how privy everyone is to the nerdiness of that, but from a film background, the whole Disney acquisition of Lucasfilm really fascinated me. Sure. And regardless of your position on new canon, old canon, what happened was Disney said, all right, we want to tell new stories. And there's 20 to 30 years of Star Wars novelizations. And if we force our writers to be bound by 20 to 30 years worth of books, it's really going to confine what you can actually do. Yeah. So they said, that's all legends. And now we're going to have a new canon. (laughs) So Zahn wrote a series of books set after Return of the Jedi, the first one of which I'm reading now called Heir to Empire, where Grand Admiral Thrawn of the Empire is one of the main villains. And he wrote a new series of books that's set between the animated Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels series and basically pops right up to Rogue One. So I really enjoyed those. Sure. First book, really good. Second book was okay. Third book was really good again. By the way, I, I, I highly recommend to any of our listeners to check out those animated series. I, I know I was hesitant at first, but there's just a lot of good story there that really kind of fills in a lot of gaps. And it's just, it's an interesting addition to Star Wars. And even though it's a little bit out of the ordinary when compared to like the originals, it's definitely worth investing in and uh, in, in watching, I think. Touche. I find 
Thrawn's character fascinating, particularly in the novelizations there, because you're seeing this master tactician. He's not a strong man. He's a very intelligent person. Sure. What's interesting, though, is in in this new canon trilogy, uh, he's portrayed as the protagonist, and you kind of feel for him because he's the underdog and he has to outwit everyone around him. But now I'm reading Heir to Empire, which is the book that introduced him, Mm -hmm. and he's definitely the villain. (laughs) And he's got that same tactical mind, but because he's the antagonist and basically the idea is like he rounded up the remainder of the Imperial fleet after the Battle of Endor and has been like strategically attacking the New Republic. He's ruthless. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) this is a really intense book, but I'm really enjoying it. Also, the narration uh, on Audible by Mark Thompson is freaking amazing. It's one guy doing all these voices. And, you know, it's not like it's an exact perfect imitation of Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford. Sure. But it's so good that I don't care. Like you're just wrapped up in the story. (laughs) So it's kind of funny. I've been like absorbed in the world of audiobooks. And um, so that's going on. Yeah. Totally non-theological, but entertaining and uh, relevant with episode nine coming out very quickly here. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how people respond after the interesting response to episode eight. Bit of a mixed review from the public. In case you people are wondering where we stand, we we liked episode eight. I don't love episode us. eight. Don't add us. No, please do. Um, I'm just kidding. I, I argued <laughs> with people in... Uh, Facebook groups about that longer than I should have. Oh, yeah. What are we getting into today, Justin? Well, today we are going to do a bit of an introduction to the Solas. So for those of you who may not know, the Solas of the Reformation are basically Sola is Latin for alone. And so we're looking at the five Solas of the Reformation, which kind of indicate uh, the process of salvation for God's people. And so we have Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solas Christus, Sola Scriptura, and Soli Deo Gloria. Basically, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And today we're just going to touch on the very first one, though we may slightly touch uh, Sola Fide just because of the nature of the first two being so tied together. I mean, really, they're all inseparable, but those two really go together a lot. So we'll probably touch on them both, but we're going to try to focus in on the first solo, which is Sola Gratia. Excellent introduction. Well, thank you. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. And I think that's a beautiful summation of Christian doctrine. And one thing that, you know, we'll get into this more in some of the others. We're not talking about solo scriptura or that we can just pick out passages of scripture on their own. We need tota scriptura or the whole of scripture, the whole testimony of God. Letting scripture interpret itself. If you're confused on scripture, look at the broader picture, look at other passages that may help clear up what you're uh, questioning. Absolutely. And that gets into a topic called hermeneutics, Mm -hmm. which is basically your method for how you interpret the Bible. So hermeneutics (laughs) refers to your interpretive methodology as it relates to scripture, which is really important. It reminded me of a meme. It has Joel Osteen's face and he says, hermeneutics? I've never heard of him. (laughs) It's almost a dad joke in a meme. Almost. (laughs) So for me personally, I've kind of been on a journey where there was a time in my life where I would open up the Bible, and we've talked about this in other episodes, Yes, where I would come to a passage like in Philippians where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as I'm standing at the top of a ski mountain that I've never skied before, (laughs) and I'm really inexperienced, and I'm like, I can do all things. And then I, you know, literally tumbled down the mountain and busted up my knees, and I limped for two weeks. Dude, I've seen that in youth groups where people have been like, I'm going to ask her to prom. I can do all things. And it's like, no. 
I right. want to. <laughs> that would be an example of a terrible hermeneutic. <laughs> I don't even know what to call that. I think, and I don't want to slander anybody, so I'm not going to go and go into details talking about sure. hermeneutics. I don't know much about. I know there are hermeneutics that I think tend to lead in dangerous places. Prosperity gospel, I don't Ooh, have any problem yes. calling out. Yep. I mean, you can probably speak to that a little bit about how their hermeneutic damages their interpretation of scripture to the point that they're preaching literally a different gospel. Well, right. Their focus is so much on financial stuff, as well as a lot of times the spiritual gift of healing, this idea that everyone's always going to be healed. They need to be healed. And when they're healed, they're going to be healed financially as well. So they're going to prosper naturally. Yeah. I know far too many people close to me who have this sort of hermeneutic on scripture where it's basically always God's will to heal everybody and that everybody's going to be rich. And if you don't have those things, there's a problem with you. Your faith is the problem. You're not praying hard enough. You're not dying to sin enough. And so therefore the issue is really you and there's no, there's no real grace alone in any of that. So, well, before we get into too deep into this particular discussion, I know that we throw around the idea of saved by grace, but people use the word salvation in a lot of different ways. Yes, they do. And there's a reason for that. It's because the Bible uses the word salvation or or refers to being saved in a number of different ways. Do you want to bounce around what some of those are, or maybe we can jump right into the text and kind of... Sure. Yeah. So salvation can mean a lot of things, uh, and depending on the context in which we're looking at, obviously there's justification, the moment where we go from sinner to saint, the moment where we are converted, we come to Christ, we are justified. And that's why, beautifully, if we die in that moment, like the thief on the cross, having not had a chance to actually act on our repentance other than just having faith in Christ, that grace is applied to us and we can still have eternity with Christ. So our justification is one meaning of salvation there. And then we also have you know, the term of like our final glorification when we're raised from the dead and we're given new bodies and we're, you know, alive in eternity, the final ultimate sense or the consummation of salvation. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the concept of sanctification, which is what comes up in the book of James. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. Yeah. And that's the majority of the Christian's life (laughs) is sanctification. And it is a slow and arduous process. And it's not something that we should want to rush. Mm-mm. Because by its very nature, it forces us daily to come to God in prayer and say, I can't do this. It has to be you. Yes. I need your strength today. I will seek you in the morning. So where do these terms come from, Justin? Because they sound very heady and theological and a little ivory tower. <laughs> Who decided that we should use these terms uh, justified they... and glorified? What, what's all this about? Oh, I did. I decided that. Of course not. <laughs> these are terms that we get from Scripture. Scripture speaks about all these different forms of what salvation looks like through the Christian's life. Um, it talks about our justification when we come to Christ. It talks about being sanctified through Christ, convicted by the Holy Spirit to be sanctified. And then, of course, when we pass away, being glorified and being with him forever. These are not terms that we're making up. They may seem heady to some people, but if you start spending time studying Scripture in the nerdy ways we do, you'll become a lot more familiar with these phrases. And hopefully we can bring some light to you guys who are listening just to make it a little more clear. How about you take a look at that Romans passage for us? Mm, Romans 8. Okay, so naturally, as Calvinists, the first place we're going to open is Romans. (laughs) 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 But I promise it's not the only place we will read from today. Cheers Um, to that. Amen. (laughs) Uh, So if we open to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we can start here. And we know that for those who love God, that's the people of God, us, the elect, 
For those that love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Mm. So there's those terms. And that's kind of a, I think, a beautifully laid out order of operations, so to speak. (laughs) A lot of reformed theologians, and I've heard other people use it too, will refer to this as the golden chain of salvation. Yes. Which is that in eternity past, which we'll see in Ephesians 2, God predestines Mm -hmm. those he foreknows. And foreknows, if if I may interject, foreknows, scripturally speaking, if we're looking at the original original languages here, it's more of a verb than it is anything else. He foreknew Adam. It's an action that God has taken. It's not just knowledge that he's received. It's action that he's taken in his foreknowing. Absolutely. So those he foreknew, he predestined. So before eternity passed, God knew us. And not just in the sense of he knew maybe what we might do, like he knew our sin. And yet when we were dead... At the right time, Christ died for us. And yet when we were dead, God chose to make us alive in Christ. So he predestines those he foreknows Mm -hmm. to be conformed into the image of Christ. And there's that talking of sanctification. You see Paul use this language a few chapters later in Romans 12, being transformed by the renewing of the mind. This idea that we're constantly throughout the Christian life from the time we're born again until we die, we're being conformed into Christ's image. We're being changed. Mm -hmm. And that's a process of sanctification. You are being saved, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's that sanctification, conforming to Christ's image, being transformed. And then we get into this idea of he calls us and this is an effectual call and we'll talk about this in another episode i'm sure because we'll talk on the five points of calvinism tulip referring to salvation yep but this idea of calling there's two senses there's the general gospel call that goes out to all the world and then there's a a specific effective call where christ talks about i call to my sheep and they come to me because they hear my voice and my sheep know me those who are the elect those who are the sheep will come because they're effectually called I'm just going to backtrack just a hair when it talks about firstborn being the firstborn among many brothers. Mm. I want people to understand the term firstborn there is a term of preeminence. It has nothing to do with actual timing, like he wasn't born first. It has to do with the fact that he is first in authority. He's preeminent among many brothers. That's excellent. And it's crucial, too, in that our understanding of how this whole thing kind of works out. And again, we're getting nitty gritty and technical, but it is distilling theology. So that's the idea. (laughs) And then there's this place of justification, which is... Is where God declares us just, hmm. even though we're sinners, because he looks at the accomplishments of Christ. We've talked about this as well. Yes. The great exchange. Jesus takes our sin upon him and suffers the wrath of God on our behalf that we deserved. And then on the flip side, Jesus actively lived out the law perfectly. Hmm. And so we are justified, not only in the sense that the punishment is fulfilled, but also Christ's righteousness is applied to us. So it's a big thing. Imputed righteousness. That's the term. There it is. The imputation of righteousness an alien righteousness, as the reformers called it. Yes. And then it ends in our ultimate glorification, resurrection, new bodies, new heaven, new earth. And then we will have holy minds and holy hearts because God will put his law on our hearts, as it says in Hebrews. So to me, I mean, that's just all very, very thrilling. But our our point in all of that is this whole topic of salvation is big and it has a lot of components to it. So we may use it 
I think on this show, we'll do our best to specifically refer to the element we're talking about. Sure. So if we're talking about the current struggle, we'll talk about sanctification. If we're talking about the ultimate finality, we'll talk about glorification. If we're talking about the moment God changes us, as you said, sinner to saint, justification. And then also there's predestination and calling. And then, you know, there's also the idea of regeneration, which is that being born again, which corresponds in with justification. But all that, yes. all of that groundwork laid for this couple of episodes on the five solas, we're saved by grace alone. Precisely. And I think that would lead great into Ephesians 2 if you want to read it. Oh, I'd love to hear you read it. I will read it gladly. So Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. <gasps> Gasp, he's not going to read verse 1. <laughs> what Gasp. kind of Calvinist are you? Gasp. <laughs> <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places by Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of our works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I think that's beautiful because at some point we're going to talk about works and things of that nature. And this verse plays beautifully into how works are applied in our salvation being necessary, but not meritorious. Mm, That is so good. The beauty of this is it's not saying that, okay, you're saved by grace, so you can do whatever you want. Like Paul is clearly articulating Mm -hmm. you're saved unto doing a good work. Like God has a purpose that we're to walk in it. It's not just, okay, you're saved by grace. Now go do whatever you want. (laughs) By no means. Amen. He says. I have a quote on here from Ligonier Ministries that I thought was great. It's kind of a summation of a whole article on the topic, but it says, we are saved then, sola gracia, by the grace of God alone. Far from leading us to embrace lives of license and moral recklessness, the grace of God and the gospel leads us to pursue lives of consecration and holiness. And uh, he says, there's this quote from Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This idea that no matter what we had to get, if we could give everything in creation, it's insufficient. Hmm. Yeah. Nothing we can give. And we can't give that, but nothing we can give, nothing we can do is sufficient. And so it is by the almighty work of God. And it frees us to live consecrated and holy, not to live in antinomian lawlessness or or this idea that we don't have any rules or restrictions and we can do whatever we want as uh, antinomian heretics would teach. (laughs) I think Martin Luther sums it up well in the bondage of the will. Following up that quote, he says, God has surely promised his grace to the humbled, that is to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. This idea that we're mourning over our own sin, but a man cannot be thoroughly humbled until he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another. That is God alone. Only those who have given up all self-reliance can be saved. I mean, that is beautiful explanation, I think, of what you were just reading, um, the quote from Isaac Watson. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. (laughs) It's so good. And I think there's another important distinction, too, of a lot of Protestants think that at the time of the Reformation, the Roman church taught that you weren't saved by grace, you were saved by works. And that's not true. The Roman church taught that you were saved by grace and works. And to the term you used earlier, meritorious, maybe you can talk on that a little bit more, this idea of meritorious grace or meritorious works. Absolutely. So Rome teaches 
that our uh, salvation is our grace plus our works. So the works are necessary for salvation. And we would argue, yes, we agree works are necessary in salvation, but they would argue that the works are necessary not only for your salvation as a whole, but also for your justification. This idea that we're converted both on God's grace, but also because of the works that we're doing. So there's this equation that says, you know, grace plus works equals justification. And we recognize that that's nonsense. (laughs) It's not what scripture teaches. It's very abundantly clear to us. Us, that it is grace or our faith here equals justification plus works. The works are a necessary part of our salvation. James is clear that if we we have salvation or we claim to have salvation, but there is no works, our faith is dead. There's no arguing that our works are necessary, but the problem is the works don't have any merit. That's the term meritorious comes from. There's no merit from our works that contribute to our salvation, but they're a necessary result of our salvation. Those works that were called by Christ that are laid out beforehand that were called unto are those works that are necessary in our salvation. It's part of our sanctification. That's amazing. And I have nothing to add to that except the quote from (laughs) Jonathan Edwards, where he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation, but the sin which made it necessary. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I've used that quote on telemarketers who have tried to call me. <laughs> they always hang up on me. It's great. <laughs> so I, I've definitely doctored that quote a bit, like in a group chat. I said, you contribute nothing to this group chat except the memes, which made it necessary. <laughs> so, you know, we have some fun with it. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think that the five solas are something that Protestant people would do well to study and to understand. Not because some smart theologians made them up, not because we're trying to be so intellectual and heady, but because they're practical. Yeah, Absolutely. They affect our our view of scripture, they affect our view of God, and they affect our understanding of how we live this life. Right. It always comes back to me as we claim to love Christ— and if we love Christ, we want to know Christ. And the more we want to know Christ, that's going to involve knowing the scriptures. Our theology is going to expand. It's going to grow. Sproul says everyone's a theologian, and he's right. Everybody has a theology. There's no getting around it. The minute you say, you know, when you hear that phrase, no creed but Christ. Well, okay, well, who's Christ? Well, he's, okay, now you're giving me your theology. Congratulations, you plagued yourself. There's no way around theology, and everyone has a theology. So I think it's important that as we grow, up, grow in Christ— And if we claim to love Christ and we actually do, I think all these things are going to be necessary results. That necessary works that we talked about are going to be a result of our salvation, our justification. I agree completely. And I think that is a beautiful way to wrap up today's episode (laughs) as we head into the remainder of this series. Next episode, we're going to be talking about sola fide, which is specifically justification by faith alone. Amen. And go ahead and check out our newly launched website, distillingtheology.com. You can sign up for our mailing list to get exclusive content. You can also get to our social media from there, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I mentioned on our Facebook how fire the Instagram looks right now, so I highly recommend getting over there and checking it out. Thanks for listening. 